turn to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, as we continue to work our way through. Our goal is to finish the chapter today. We're picking it up in verse 27. So I will uh, just begin reading here. I'm just going to read the first little section rather than reading the whole thing to you this morning. And so we'll read 27 through 30 and then pray. Jesus speaking here, the Sermon on the Mount, he says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Lord, thank you for the reading of your word, and as we get into it this morning and read it, we pray for you to give us the understanding, the application for our own lives, for our own time, for our own situation. And Lord, may you just preside over our hearts this morning. May our ears and our eyes be fertile soil uh, as our hearts are, are sown with the word of God. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we have been working our way through this amazing passage of Scripture where Jesus is giving what is called the Sermon on the Mount. There, this is one of five discourses that Jesus gives in Matthew's Gospel. A discourse is sort of like a long speech, if you will. And in the course of him giving this discourse, which is the longest, he has people outside, and uh, I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to go to Israel. If you ever do, jump at the opportunity. It is amazing to stand there on what we believe to be the the place where Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount by the, the northern shore of Lake Galilee up near Capernaum, and to imagine, you know, him doing that, him giving that, that sermon, this sermon, to the people, to sit down there and read it, or to perhaps sit down in the group and have someone read this sermon to you is it's just a very surreal kind of a moment. And so Jesus, as he was doing this, had a real heart to minister to the common everyday people. Uh, in these days, of course, they did not have copies of the Word of God as we have in our hands today. Uh, only the, the rich, only the people who studied in university had copies of the Scriptures. They were incredibly difficult to come by. And so as Jesus is speaking, he is using this phrase, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. And so the scribes and the Pharisees, the teachers, were speaking to the people and giving them what they felt were the, the, the understanding or the proper interpretation of God's word, the law. And as we had uh, talked about last week, the Ten Commandments uh, that we, uh, we just briefly read and went through last week in Exodus chapter 20, uh, over time had been made into over 613 laws by the scribes and the Pharisees. And there were 365 of those that were shall nots and 240 that were you need to do this. And both sides were very legalistic and they had over 40 ways documented that you could break the Sabbath. And so they laid a very heavy burden upon the people. And of course, they themselves paraded about in their robes and and lived in such an ostentatious way as to help people understand that unless you're like us, you can't be righteous. And they had the wrong idea that righteousness came through outward obedience, and that if you didn't uh, act as they acted and believe everything that they said, then you were not going to be a good Jewish citizen. And so Jesus now comes here to share with them what God himself says about and thinks of the law. Jesus said that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. We talked about that last week. And each of these things now, after he said that, when he be, uh, begins in verse 21, he, he actually takes 
one of the Ten Commandments and lays it out there and then speaks to it. In that first section in Matthew 5, 21 through 26, he looked at the commandment number six from Exodus chapter 20, Exodus 20, 13, which says you shall not murder. And then he talked about how murder begins in our hearts. It begins with an attitude. It begins with anger. And we spent some time talking about that last week. Today we pick it up in verse 27 about the issue of adultery. Jesus says, verse 27, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. That's a straight quote from Exodus 20, 14, the commandment number seven, if you're listing them in order. He says, but I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, it would seem, of course, that he's speaking to men. Why is he speaking to men? Does that mean a woman can't lust? Of course not. But it is more common that men uh, who are visually oriented, who are visually driven, uh, look at women as objects, look at women in sexual ways. And so um, the, the teachers of the law took a strict interpretation and they said, well, unless you actually physically commit the act, then you're okay. You can look all you want, just don't touch. But Jesus is saying, no, if you even look at a woman to lust for her, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. It's important to understand here that Jesus is not saying or equating the act of adultery and adultery in the heart. Certainly committing the act of adultery is a horrible thing. But Jesus is pointing to the fact that our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. People may say, I've already committed adultery in my heart, so I might as well go ahead and do it in practice. No, no. The act of adultery is far worse than adultery in the heart. Jesus' point is not to say they are the same things, but to say that they are both sin. And both are prohibited by the command against adultery. Some people only keep from adultery because they are afraid to get caught. And in their heart, they commit adultery every day. It is good that they keep from the act of adultery, but it is bad that their heart is filled with adultery. This principle applies to much more than men looking at women. It applies to just about anything that we can covet with the eye or with the mind. One camp, uh, a commentator said, these are the most searching words concerning impurity that were ever uttered. So keeping in mind that the issue is always an issue of the heart. Since Jesus considers adultery in the heart a sin, we know that uh, what we think about and allow uh, our heart to rest on is based on choice. Many believe that they have no choice and therefore no responsibility for what they think about, but this contradicts the clear teaching of Jesus. We may not be able to control passing thoughts or feelings, but we certainly do decide where our heart and our mind will rest. So, you know, sometimes we say something like, hey, I can't unsee that in our culture today. Certainly there are things that we can't prevent seeing. They just happen in front of us, but we can, as the, this commentator was expressing, we can uh, control ourselves, we control our thoughts, we can control what we choose to meditate upon. One person said this with respect to our imagination. Imagination is a God-given gift, but if it is fed dirt by the eye, it will be dirty. All sin, not the least sexual sin, begins with the imagination. Therefore, what feeds the imagination is of maximum importance in the pursuit of kingdom righteousness. Isn't it true that when we start thinking about something, there's an old maxim that says if you think of something long enough or think about something long enough, you will end up doing it. This is why it's so important for us as believers and followers of Jesus Christ to, as it says, and we just studied this this past week in the men's study, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, we take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Once we begin to think about things, 
uh, we need to make sure that those things are given over to the Lord, that we turn to the Lord with those thoughts and we say, Lord, is this something you want me to think about? And, and maybe his word's already clearly spoken about it, so we have an answer. But especially when you know, we're thinking about things like relationships or, or those kinds of things, or maybe we want our situation to be different. We need to seek the Lord and pray and say, God, would you be gracious and merciful? Lord, what is your will for me in this situation? Uh, on the issue of imagination and longing, as I was thinking about this, I began to think about Lot's wife. And in Luke chapter 17, Jesus said, likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot. Remember, Lot was living in uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. It was a very wicked city. We just studied this uh, through last year as we studied the book of Genesis together. They ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, remember, Sodom, remember the angels went in to rescue Lot and his family. Uh, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed all of them. Uh, Jesus says, even so it will be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. And in that day, he who is on the housetop and his goods are in his house. Let him not come down to take his goods. Uh, likewise, uh, he who was in the field, let them not turn back. And then Jesus injects right here, remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. In Genesis 19, where we find the story of Lot's wife, Genesis 19, 17 says, So it came to pass, when they had brought them outside, that is the angels, that he said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you, nor stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. And then a little further along, as they were making their journey down in uh, verse 26, Genesis 19, 26, but his wife, Lot's wife, looked back behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. Why do I bring that up here in the context of adultery? We know that what happened is that in her heart, she looked back with longing. Uh, that's what those words mean as we look them up and understand what they're talking about. And Jesus said, remember Lot's wife. Why? Because she looked back with longing. And Jesus gave us that saying in the context of keeping our eyes focused on the main thing, which is Jesus Christ. And which for us as believers in the church today, the next thing before us prophetically is the rapture of the church when Jesus will come and take his church to be home with him. Now, as I shared just a moment ago and I shared last week about the things happening in our culture and our society, I think the Lord is divinely allowing COVID to simply be a tool to bring out these things that are happening in the hearts of men, men who desire to see the church go down in flames, men who desire power and to control other people. And yet, if you think of the day when Jesus lived, the Roman government, the Roman society was seeking to control the people. And we need to understand that the battle isn't really about COVID. It never is. It's just, this is just the latest thing that the enemy is using to try and beat God's people down and bring them in submission. Just yesterday, I was talking on the phone with my daughter in Italy, and as we were talking about that uh, issue of COVID and what's going on over there, um, and, and my wife traveling over and all of that, uh, you know, she was just expressing her frustration with the government and the way things are being run, and I just reminded her you know, it says in 1 John chapter 5, I believe it's the last verse, it says, the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. You see, God has temporarily given the control of this world over to Satan. And Jesus just talked about a couple of weeks ago in the passage we read at chapter 5, verses um, 10 through 12, that there will be persecution for the church. There will be persecution for those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, Paul wrote to Timothy. So what we think about, how we think about these things in these days, this is important. It's important for us to keep our focus on the main thing. And what is the main thing? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the word of God. It's that we are here to be salt and light. That's something we considered a couple of weeks ago. It's important to understand that temptation, whether that temptation is 
outside the confines of marriage between one man and one woman, or whether it's inside the confines of marriage and one partner is, has a wandering eye to, to look elsewhere, these are things to distract us from our simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. These temptations are things that we are to be aware of. In fact, Paul spoke to this issue of our minds and what we think about in Philippians chapter 4, where a lot of us probably have these verses underlined in Philippians 4, 6, and 7 that talks about prayer. But in verse 8, it says, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Or to put it in our vernacular, think on these things. It's important for us to understand that our enemy would like to use what John again called in his epistle, the world, the flesh, and the devil, to draw us aside, to, to distract us. And so we don't want to become distracted, distracted by things like sexual temptation, if at all possible. Is it wrong to be tempted? No, everyone is tempted. It's wrong to give in to the temptation. Well, as we continue, there's certainly more we could say about that in verse 29, Matthew 5. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And then he says the same thing about your hand. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Unfortunately, many people have interpreted this literally and have literally uh, taken out an eyeball or have cut off a hand, and it's a gross misinterpretation. Jesus is using uh, what we would call a figure of speech here. And here's the issue. Uh, while we believe in the literal, historical, grammatical interpretation of the Scriptures, which allows for the normal use of language and literary devices, as we approach the Scriptures... How do you know when you know, certain things are literal and when they aren't? That's kind of a whole different discussion. But here, uh, just th if we think about it a bit, the trouble with the literal interpretation is, is that it does not go far enough. If I pluck out one eye because I believe my eye is causing me to sin, I still have the other eye, correct? And if I plucked out my other eye, I still have the vain imaginations of my mind. If I cut off my right hand, and if I'm right-handed, now I have to learn to use my left hand. My left hand can still sin as well as my right hand did, so then I would have to cut off my, my other hand. Jesus is making a point here. Mutilation will not serve the purpose. It may prevent the outward act, but it will not extinguish the internal desire for sin. Jesus simply stressed the point that one must be willing to sacrifice to be obedient. If part of our life is given over to sin, we must be convinced that it is more profitable for that part of our life to die to sin rather than con to condemn our whole life. There is the, the one thing many are unwilling to do, and that, excuse me, this is the one thing that many are unwilling to do, and that is why they remain trapped in sin or never come to Christ. They never get beyond a vague wish to be better. You see, when we come to Christ, Jesus gives us the power over sin. Because of his blood paying for the penalty of our sin, because of his Holy Spirit whom he's now given to live inside of us, we have power over sin. Do we still struggle? Yes, on this side of heaven, we will always struggle with sin. But there's this process called sanctification, which means we are growing in our understanding and in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And as we read about the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, the result of, of God living inside of us now is that we have joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And this is because of the presence of the Holy Spirit and now our understanding of God's Word. Furthermore, as we continue on, as we think about these things, he comes to the issue of divorce. Now, we're just going to take a brief look at these two verses because as we move along in the Gospel of Matthew, when we come to chapter 19, 
Jesus gives a very detailed and long teaching on the issue of divorce. And when we get to Matthew 19, we will also uh, just look at divorce that particular Sunday, but we will also go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, which is where Paul himself gives a further insight into the issue of divorce. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 31, Jesus says, Furthermore, it has been said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Now, the issue of divorce has uh, been a hot issue in society and in humanity for many, many years. In the Jewish law, in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4, you find the laws concerning divorce that Jesus is addressing. And it says, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. You see, the, the Jewish men had interpreted the law to mean um, that you could divorce your wife for pretty much any reason whatsoever. So it was very common in those days for a Jewish man, if he didn't like the way his wife even cooked his breakfast, that he could just say, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you, and it was over. He could take a napkin and literally write on it, I divorce my wife, and have his next door neighbor witness it, and it was a done deal. And I think as we think about that, that uh, their interpretation that a man could divorce his wife for any reason whatsoever that she displeased him uh, is ridiculous. It's, it's a horrible thing, and Jesus is, of course, addressing this. In fact, in Jesus' day, there were two primary schools of thoughts by two of the leading rabbis of the time. There was a, a rabbi named Shammai who restricted to some indecency uh, of the Deuteronomy 24 passage to refer only to a sexual misdemeanor authenticated by witnesses, meaning uh, that he could somehow validate or prove that his wife went out on him. The school of Hillel reputedly took it, took it of any cause of complaint, including the burning of the dinner. So there are these kind of two ends of the spectrum approaches, and Jesus says, hey, this is all wrong. You know, we've, we don't understand uh, or we're missing what God's intent is. Uh, Jesus says here, verse 32, but I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality, so unless there is adultery or fornication involved uh, in the process, causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. So it's getting messy, and he's saying that the societal norms do not define what God wants. In fact, I don't know how many of you may know this, I'm probably showing my age here, it was actually President Ronald Reagan who implemented in this country what we now today call no-fault divorce. Now, it's no secret that he himself was divorced and remarried, but it was under his presidency that he authored the law. Well, actually, he did it when he was governor of California, and then he brought it into the, uh, the, the United States Public Forum. And so no-fault divorce is pretty much common Across the country, different states, of course, have different takes on it. So just because our government or our society may look upon divorce in a favorable way, just as our society looks favorably upon abortion, does not in any way, shape, or form make it correct. It doesn't validate it. And uh, so, so Jesus speaks to some very specific issues here that were happening in their society in that day, and as I mentioned, when we get to Matthew 19, we'll go into it in a little more detail. This next section about oaths, uh, Jesus is addressing in the law, commandment number three from Exodus chapter 20, verse seven, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Jesus says, Matthew 5:33 again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. 
nor shall you swear by your head because you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. What is this getting at? Well, think of it this way. Perhaps we've all dealt with someone from time to time who has come to us and said, you know, I swear to God I'm telling the truth. Or I need to borrow some money till payday, and I swear on a stack of Bibles that I will pay you back when payday comes. Or people say crazy things like, I swear on my mother's grave that this is true. Or whatever kind of crazy thing they come up with. And the issue is, the problem is, that their word is no good. That there's no integrity in their heart, and they have to go to great lengths to try to prove that they're a person of their word in that moment, even though historically they have not been that way. And so Jesus says, listen, don't swear at all, neither by heaven for it's God's throne. So the things that people make up and that they say, listen, man, I swear by God's throne in heaven. Well, how can you do that? Do you even know who God is? Have you ever been to heaven? Do you know where his throne is? Have you seen his throne? And we, we, we talk about things just to try and give our word, our, our character, momentary validity when there has been nothing that has backed up our word up to that point. Jesus is saying here, look, you should be a person of your word. Do you realize that a mere 50 to 70 years ago, deals were made even on Wall Street for millions and billions of dollars with a handshake and a person's word? Today, of course, no one would do that. Again, I, I remember dating myself here. Some of you will remember this. Larry Glick, who used to be on WBZ Radio at night. I used to listen to him because I worked second shift in the early days of my life. And he had this saying that he would say, because sometimes callers would call in and he'd be, be like, you know, giving advice and that kind of a thing. And I remember he said this, and it's so true. A verbal contract is not worth the paper it's written on. And Jesus here is ad addressing this issue here, people making oaths. Uh, you can't swear by God's throne. You can't swear by the earth. Did you have any part in creating the earth? It says, for the earth is his footstool. Uh, God says in the Psalms, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where's the house that you'll build for me? Uh, nor by Jerusalem, people, of course, would swear by the, the city of Jerusalem. And he says, for it is the city of the great king. Uh, what do we have to do with these things? We try to find something that's beyond ourselves to swear by them. Nor shall, be, now shall, nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. There might be some who would take exception and say, but today we have hair color. Not really. You don't have the authority to determine if a hair turns white or black or if you have your hair as you grow older or if it all falls out. You have no control over such things. Jesus says in verse 37, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. In other words, if you and I are not people of integrity, if we don't stand behind our word, if our character is not enough to back up our word, then there's a real problem in who we are. You see, having to swear or make oaths betrays the weakness of our word. It demonstrates that there is not enough weight in our own character to confirm our words. The truly good man will never need to take an oath. The truth of his sayings and the reality of his promises need no such guarantee. But the fact that oaths are still sometimes necessary is the proof that men are not good and that this is not a good world. So we need to be careful. Make sure, maybe as we sit here today, maybe we can look back on our lives and say, well, I've had a little trouble here. My track record is not that great. Well, start today. Let your yes be yes, and let your no be no. And certainly a part of what he's talking about here is the issue of truth-telling. When we say something, let's be careful. Listen, our society does this all the time, doesn't it? It happens in business. I'm in business meetings all week where people stretch the truth or where they withhold facts and they don't give the, the full weight of the truth. 
we as believers should not be caught up in those things. We should be people of integrity. The next section, verse 38, <clears throat> excuse me, addresses the issue of retaliation. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek to turn the other to him also. So Jesus here is quoting from Exodus chapter 21. Let me read a little context for you so you understand what he is talking about. If men fight and hurt a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely yet no harm follows, he shall surely be punished accordingly as the woman's husband imposes on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if any harm follows, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. If a man strikes the eye of his male or female servant and destroys it, he shall let him go free for the sake of his eye. That's the original context. So it was in the context of laying down the laws judicially of how do you deal with different situations that may come up uh, as people live together. So Jesus is pointing to the fact that the scribes and the Pharisees, again, just like we talked about earlier with adultery, they took sort of a view and said, hey, retribution is pretty much okay. Whatever you want to do to get even with those people who are your enemies or someone who inflicts harm on you, go for it. But they misread it. They took it out of context. In fact, the context, if you go look at this chapter, is talking about doing only what is just. And it even talks about in that chapter about trusting God for what happens. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But if any harm follows, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye. This law was meant to block our desire for vengeance and is not given as a license for revenge. Our tendency is to want to do more to the offending party than what they have done to us. Have you ever heard it said, or perhaps have you said to someone when they've inflicted some kind of harm on you, just be careful, paybacks are, I won't quote it, but worse. And the law of God is no, don't do that. We are not here to return evil for evil or insult for insult. Jesus says in verse 39, but I tell you, not to resist an evil person. This is troubling. <laughs> but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. You see, in that culture, in that society, there are things that we don't understand today. But uh, most of the world was regarded as right-handed in that day. And if you think of two people facing each other, if my right hand hits you on your right cheek, your right cheek is facing me on my left, that would mean I have to backhand you across your face. In that society, to hit someone backhandedly across the face was an insult of the highest order. And if that were to happen because two people got heated in an argument and that slap on the right cheek happened, he says, turn the other to him also. Understand that as Jesus says these things to us, let's be reminded he is our example in all things, is he not? Didn't Jesus on his way to the cross fulfill these things? Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In Matthew 27, verse 30, it says, Then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. In Luke 22, Luke's account of the crucifixion, Now the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him. And having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy, who is the one who struck you? Jesus certainly knew what he was talking about. Do not resist an evil person or his or her insults. One person said it is wrong to think that Jesus means a physical attack cannot be resisted or defended against. When Jesus speaks of a slap on your right cheek, it was culturally understood as a deep insult. 
It's also wrong to think Jesus means that there is no place for punishment or retribution in society. Jesus here speaks to personal relationships and not to the proper functions of government in restraining evil. Romans 13 talks about this. I must turn my cheek when I am personally insulted, but the government has a responsibility to restrain evil people from physical assault. So the issue here comes back to us in the context that he spoke of earlier, that if you are a person who desires to live righteously, you will be persecuted for righteousness' sake. And so if someone wants to treat us in an insulting way, Jesus is saying here that we respond in such a way that it communicates the love of God. He will continue to develop this in Matthew 5.40. If anyone wants to sue you, and take away your tunic. Let him have your cloak also. So this is, to put it in modern day language, this is kind of the idea of you have a really nice coat and someone wants it, so they sue you to take your property, to take your coat. Jesus again fulfilled this on the cross, did he not? John 19, then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier apart, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. And they said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So these things, again, were done to Jesus. Verse 41, and whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Under Roman law, a soldier could come by and take his spear and touch you on your shoulder and say, carry my gear. And you were obligated under Roman law to go one mile carrying his gear. But Jesus is saying, look, go above and beyond that. If he says, go one mile, go with him too. What is the point of that? It's to go further, to do more than what is expected. It's to let our lights shine that our Father in heaven may be glorified. He says in verse 42, continuing on this idea, give to him who asks of you and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. In other words, seeing every opportunity as an opportunity for the gospel. Seeing every a mistreatment or abuse or insult as an opportunity to in return or in kind show the love of Christ to people. I remember many years ago I was at a management training class, the company I was working for, and as we went to this class we didn't, I mean we sort of knew it was just like a training class but we didn't know exactly what it was about and uh, on this particular morning um, it, I think it was a three or four day kind of a class. As we were sitting there just randomly in this room, a bunch of us who didn't know each other from all over the company, uh, we were given a piece of paper um, and, and a number. And basically like, you know, you know, the number ones, you know, okay, those who have number one come up front. And so this was an enactment. And so we had to come up front and take our seat. Okay, the number ones come up. And on your piece of paper, it just gave you a little snippet of a scenario. And I remember mine was, you are this person's manager, and your job is to deal with the situation he puts before you. That's all you're told. The other person, which I now know, got a piece of paper saying, um, you're going through a very difficult time in life, and you want your boss to help you out, and you're kind of upset that he hasn't done more to help you, he or she, and so you need to come at him and sort of be upset and irate uh, as you come into this meeting with him, and so that's all you're told and you're supposed to basically fall into character and act it out. And so as we came into this situation, I was terrified because we had to do it in front of people, number one, and we were all being graded on our responses. And so it was a very kind of just loose, open thing, and it was all basically a big test to see how we would respond. So I remember, this is at least 25 years ago, <laughs> as I was going up there, I was praying, oh God, I don't know what's going to happen, but please help me. And so we got up there, we sat down, and as we sat down, I just said, hi, John, how are you today? You know, you requested to meet, how can I help you? And the guy just began to lay into me, right? He kind of jumped into the part and 
just poured out his heart, you know, all these things were happening at home, his life was difficult, he, you know, he needed help, and, you know, it was just, his life was falling apart. And so in that moment, you know, I'm supposed to, like, figure out what's going on and, and help him. And it was by God's grace, the scriptures came to mind, and I just said, I am so sorry you were going through that, and I began to show him compassion. Um, what's going on? Tell me about what's happening at home, and how can I help? And the guy was completely disarmed. And it was, it was a God moment right there in corporate America. And as we finished and sat down, the, the instructors were standing there with their mouths open going, that was amazing. How did you do that? And I'm like, the Lord just gave me what I needed in that moment. And it has always stood as a lesson to me that this is the kind of thing that God wants us to do. He wants us to hopefully be filled with his spirit. And in those moments, be ready to share the love of Christ with people. In this last section here, it says, love your enemies. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, this was a gross misinterpretation by the scribes and the Pharisees. That is not what the word of God said. In fact, the word of God doesn't say that you can or should hate your enemy anywhere. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you, <clears throat> excuse me, and do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Let's just stop there for a moment. We've just talked about the two pastors being persecuted, and I'm sure there's more. But anytime we are experiencing any kind of persecution, any kind of abuse, any kind of insults, this is the guidance, this is the counsel that Jesus would give to you and me. Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. How many of us have done this? When we've had a horrible situation with somebody where, where a relationship has fallen apart or lies have been spoken against us or something's been taken out of context and misunderstood and now the damage has been done and you know you'll never i mean i have these things in my life i'm sure you do where relationships were broken and i don't know if we'll ever get the opportunity to come back together even though i've tried to say can we sit down and talk can we find a way to make this right people who were once friends became enemies bless those who curse you do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. You know, what we usually do is we sulk, we feed on that anger, we allow it to become bitterness, and we constantly justify ourselves against them. That is not the heart of God. Verse 45, why? That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. In other words, our character should be reflective of our heavenly father, the one that we now say he's my father in heaven, we're supposed to look like him. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. You see, our Lord Jesus Christ's philosophy was that he believed in the immediate presence and the working of God in every situation. He had a sensitive perception of the presence of his father in every situation. Paul wrote, Romans chapter 12, it's po if it's possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. You see, coming back to an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You see, the Lord will take care of it. It is not my job to avenge myself of any hurt or harm. Not just an enemy, but listen, folks, this applies to marriage, doesn't it? If we want to get real for a moment, when we're hurt in our marriage relationship or in our you know, uh, relationships we have with friends, this applies there as well. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. There's a, there's a psalm, Psalm 50, I believe, at the end of the psalm. The psalmist writes, and his heart is hurting because someone he loved, who was a friend, has, has just wounded him. And he says, we used to go to the house of God together. We used to take sweet communion in fellowship and in worship together. 
but you've betrayed me. Betrayal can sometimes create the deepest uh, responses in our lives. And, And in Romans 12, Paul goes on to say, after he says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. He says, therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not overcome, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The issue of heaping coals of fire on someone's head is not what you think. In that day, people survived because they cooked with fire, right? They had fireplaces and brick ovens and things like that. The idea of heaping coals of fire on your enemy's head is not one of like, harming them or burning them. It is rather, uh, you know, your neighbor would come to you and say, hey, my fire has gone out. I need some of your coals. Can you share them with me so I can go back and rekindle my fire? So now he's put it in the context of this person is an enemy. And you're looking at them and rather than wishing evil upon them or thinking about how you've been wounded, it's saying, hey, how's your fire? How are things going in your house? Do you need some coals? I've got some. I'll be happy to share them with you. The heaping of the coals upon their head was that they would carry the pots often on their head. And it's saying, I want to bless you. I want to be helpful to you in any way possible. The person may be standing there spitting at you, speaking the most vile things, and yet our response is to be, God, you're going to take care of that. What's going on in this person's heart is between you and them. I'm, for some reason, the object of it. But in this moment, Lord, I'm going to choose to love. I'm going to choose to be a blessing. And he says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You see, in the spirit, we can do those things that overcomes evil with good. Later, the writer of Hebrews said, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You see, this is where our faith and our trust and our hope comes in. God will be the judge. Trust in God to make the situation right. Have faith in God. Peter wrote beautifully in his epistle, 1 Peter 3, Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers. Be tenderhearted. Be courteous not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, which is insult for insult, but on the contrary, blessing. Knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing for he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. You see, God will take care of it. How do I return blessing for evil? I just do it. I say, Lord, I don't know how to do this right now, but show me how to do it. Show me how to love in the face of hate. Matthew 5, 46, for if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Remember, Jesus here taught the character of the citizens of the kingdom. We should expect that character to be different from the character seen by those in the world, by those who don't know Christ. There are many good reasons why more should be expected from Christians than from others. We claim to have something that others do not. They claim to be renewed. We, excuse me, we claim to be renewed, to be repentant, to be redeemed by Jesus Christ. That ought to look like something. We do, in fact, have something that others do not have. We are, in fact, renewed and repentant and redeemed. We have a power that others do not have. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. We have the Spirit of God dwelling within us. We have a future and a hope that they don't have. And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so. 
Listen, the church of Jesus Christ, whether we are the church gathered as we are today or whether we are the church scattered, this ought to be the friendliest place on planet Earth. Amen? Can I get an amen from anybody on that one? All right, that the church ought to be the friendliest place on planet Earth. And I don't care who walks through that door, what their sexual orientation is, what their political affiliation is, we show them the love of Christ. Why? Because that's what Jesus said we should do. It doesn't matter. What matters is that we are believers filled with the Holy Spirit and filled with the love of God. If we say we know Jesus, we are the most loved, most blessed, most filled people on the face of the planet. Put aside your hurts and your worries and your economic condition and all of that. You are beloved. You are, you are his children. If the love of God has changed and transformed my heart, then I am a changed and transformed person. Love suffers long and is kind. Love is, does not envy. It does not parade itself. It's not puffed up. It does not behave rudely. Love does not seek its own. Love is not provoked. Love does not think evil of others. Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Jesus said, therefore you shall be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. You know, we can't be sinlessly perfect on this side of heaven. But in God's eyes, as he looks down from heaven and sees us through the blood of Christ, he sees us as sinlessly perfect. Our experience may not bear that out yet, but it will. And we are growing in grace. We are growing in knowledge. We are growing as God takes over our lives and as we yield more of our lives to him. Paul said it this way in Romans chapter 3. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. You see, we are now robed in the righteousness of Christ. We are different people, regardless of how I feel, regardless of how I think. And we shouldn't make the mistake, Jesus will deal with this issue of judging later, of looking through our eyes and looking at other people and judging them, especially in the church, because of how they behave. We need to understand that often as we see people acting out, that they are hurting and that they are wounded people, and we need to be praying for them. You see, my response is the response of love, no matter what happens. And we need to be people who are filled with the love of Christ. You see, the heart of the matter is always a matter of the heart. Lord, we love you this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking to us. And as we come to your table, Lord, would you just minister to us this morning? Would you bless us? Uh, would you help us to realize, Lord, how much we've been given, how rich we are because of your son, Jesus. Lord, we are redeemed. We are free. We are filled. We are blessed. We are fully forgiven, Lord. Our sin is washed away, and we are made white as snow. May we live as children of the King. May we live as the beloved of God. May we abide in Christ. May we be filled to overflowing. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.